0: We have a sales ops person that also does Salesforce. So it's like, you go into Salesforce and if it's confusing for me, it's gonna be confusing for an AE, it's gonna be confusing for an SDR, it's gonna be confusing for a client. So we have to streamline that's less, remove the friction essentially. So we, yeah, it took a while to kind of get it rolling, but once it's rolling, then it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's juice to the squeeze, right? And that that's what you wanna always show at the end of like extra effort or added effort.
1: Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest-growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there, you are listening to Revenue Insights. Today I'll be talking with Roy Schumacher, Vice President of Sales and Business Development at NAS. Roy's journey has taken him from founder to SDR to AE, and now all the way back up to VP in his current role. Roy, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about how you've got to where you are today and that journey that you've been on.
0: Yeah, Lee, it's really good to meet you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting story that had me eating a lot of humble pie. Let's just say that coming out of the gates of uh, after COVID with my business. And I'll give you a little insight. So basically, as a teenager, I just started working at a grocery store. I got into the, actually the meat department, so became a butcher. And I did that for about 10 years. And around when I was like 24, I started working out pretty heavily. I was always like an athletic kid, but I was a skinny guy, right? So I was like, I'm going to work out and get big muscles. And I was like motivated, right? So I do that. And then... As I'm doing my normal job, I got friends that are like, hey, can you personal train me? And then more people, hey, can we do group training? Can you do boot camps? So essentially, I just turned it into personal training on the side to leaving my job, opening up a company called Fit for Life Solutions. And it went from small, renting a basketball court at a gym to six locations. And we had one franchise in Texas. And we went to thousands of clients. And we blew up over the years. And then eventually got so busy, my wife left her job as well come on to help me. And our business model was high volume classes. So bootcamp classes, primarily for women, 30 to 60 years old. And we'd run classes with, you know, 30, 45 people in it. And when COVID came and we were in the middle of the Bay Area. So from San Jose to San Francisco, all of our locations and one in Fresno, that was not what people were looking to do during COVID, right? To stay healthy is go into a room that was closed with 40 people. So I just kind of knew, hey, how our business model was going and how our growth was happening, it was, it was exponential. We were growing rapidly, but when COVID hit, I knew in my soul it was over because our business model was based on high volume training, multiple classes a day, hundreds of people in and out. And so I essentially just said, what do I love about the business? I like to sell and what do I hate about my business? I hated to hire and look for talent. So I thought I'm gonna pivot HR tech, find a talent agency, talent tech, whatever you want to call it. And I don't want to do sales. So I thought with my background and scaling a business essentially by myself, and we had a couple dozen employees to seven figures of ARR every year, I thought I could easily get a VP role somewhere like I'm doing now. Well, I was incorrect. So I go and apply and ghosted. I then, like, all right, maybe I'll go do a director. Ghosted. Manager, nothing. AE, nothing. Enterprise, commercial, small business, just working my way down. I had a buddy Brett who's been in tech sales for about 20 years, and he told me, "Yeah, yeah, you got AE, man. This is good. You have all the background. Nothing. Couldn't even get it. Couldn't even get an interview." So I essentially started at a startup that was like 18 people as an SDR, and the understanding was, "Hey, I'm going to hire you as an SDR, but I want you to build out SDR, AE, manager, director, work your way up as we scale this company." I thought, "All right, this is great." So I started there. It was called Flux. We were an internal mobility, career pathing, and development company. So L and D. Um, a lot of internal stuff like retention, mobility, moving folks around. And I started there and we just got a lot of success really quickly, right? Companies like Uber and motive and keep trucking and purple and stripe and a lot of companies quickly. And our goal was not to get acquired, but we got mentioned by a company from the UK called Beamery and they did external talent CRM. So they said, Hey, we want to buy you guys. So we merged together, they got acquired. And then I was kind of off to the races in this area where they weren't focusing on a Beamery. They were doing like 10, 15,000 plus heads. That was their focus, enterprise, high-end sales. And we had a lot of success in like 1,000 to 8,000 range, like mid enterprise, we called it, mid market. So we jumped into that and right into Beamery and we had pretty good success there as well. And I think what I was finding is why I jumped from Beamery that was a fast growing company was, I was looking to actually be enabled and not given some abstract like, hey, Lee, here's this playbook, read this, and you're going to be successful, thumbs up. That's not how it works with enablement, right? So I jumped into this VP role, and now I actually can enable people and create my playbook and my training to actual levers and say, this is the levers, this is how you pull these levers, and this is what outcome you'll see, and that's what we're seeing, right? So like that That was the long and the short of it all in one, and that's where I am today, and that's what I do, and I, I love doing it.
1: Nice, beautifully succinct. And I wanted to... This- couple of ways that I could take that, but I actually just wanted to focus on the, the humble pie a little bit. It was coming up for me as you were talking about it was something that I've seen suggested a few times is often it gets suggested to marketers, but it gets suggested to leaders as well is sometimes to get a different perspective, you've got to drop down to see things as your sellers on the front lines are seeing it, right? And so what is interesting is you've lived and breathed it, right? To go from really running your own business into starting from the very bottom and very curious to perhaps know, what would you say you maybe learned from that experience? Was there anything that stood out that really helped that humbling experience to help shape the kind of leader that you are now?
0: I think it's when you pivot and if you're going to pivot, you need to forget everything you know. Like, you don't, you can't go in because I had a real frustrating time wrapping my mind around interviewing with these companies and saying, Hey, I want to be a sales leader here. And they're like, You don't have any tech experience. And my thought in my brain was, I've had more revenue in my company than you have. Like, and it sounded almost pompous, but it was very hard for me to wrap my brain around where, for example, you get someone who's been, let's say, an eighth grade English teacher for five years who wants to be an FDR. Just because their experience isn't relevant, they are, easily crush that role based on what they currently do on their day-to-day and you know there's companies that are helping like with aaron and eric mckee i don't know if you've heard of them when they're a company sasbros they're helping people break into tech without background quote unquote technology backgrounds and that's what i would think is the, is the thing i've learned the most is that like it's all what the company's perspective is not what yours is so if they don't think you have the experience then maybe that's just not the place for you so go somewhere where if I'm talking to like an audience, go somewhere where you are recognized for your value and what you've built and what you've done. And that is what's going to explode your career, not that you have a relevant experience, quote unquote.
1: With that in mind, do you regret taking the path that you did? Do you maybe regret not being more patient to find somewhere that was that valued your skill set that you had? Or are you still satisfied that it was the right route to take?
0: I feel like it was the right road to take. And also the company, when I joined it, the, the, the founders, Max and Nick, that they, they saw my background and my founder and entrepreneurial experience. And that's what they wanted as they were growing. So like, I don't regret it at all because I think one thing that's that people miss is this, like you're a killer SDR and you become an AE and then you don't do SDR stuff anymore, but then you learn AE stuff and then you become a manager and you don't do AE stuff anymore. So I think like learning, the habits of what made you successful in your past roles, you need to take with you and continue. Like I have the thought of, I don't care if you're a CRO, CEO, you should be outbounding and doing go-to-market because how do you know where your product fits in the market if you're not trying to sell it? So like that, the kind of alignment I looked to there. So like it is a slow play, but people straight out of college become an SDR. Like you got the time, like go AE, go manager, go director, go VP. Take your time because I think you're going to learn valuable levers to pull during every step of that path up the ladder.
1: Great. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to where you are today. Just for the context of everyone listening, what's the makeup of your department? And what's the makeup of your team? Just so everyone knows a little bit more about uh, what you're doing at NAS?
0: Yeah, so we have an SDR function. And we have four regions, right? So we're broken into West, Mountain, Central and East right? And we have a bunch of sellers. And I think the myth was in the beginning was everyone was just doing what would work, right? Like we've always done it this way or whatever it is. And now that we've kind of streamlined this and we've created a process and a playbook where if tomorrow Lee, you said, "Roy, I want to come work with you guys. And I want to be an SDR. Or I want to be an AE. Or I want to be a manager that we actually have a system now that we put you through rather than just saying, Hey Lee, welcome to the team. And I turn on the fire hose and I'm like, good luck. I hope you can drink this all in, right? That's learning just the typical functions of what person does what. And then now we're seeing people are calm and they're patient and they know what they're doing and they're not scrambling end of month, end a quarter, trying to hit what they need to hit. So that's the makeup there is that we have a solid hierarchy now and we have a training protocol that goes with each brick of that building. It's really effective now, that, but we put a lot of time into it. A lot of time into training and development and enablement and making it streamlined and actually digestible i'll call it instead of just saying i'm going to swallow all this info and i'll be successful like that's not really how it works right you want to be able to swallow it all and then execute and then do it on a consistent basis and you're like wow now i'm seeing the results right so that's the kind of breakdown and method i would say we try to focus on
1: just a quick reminder and then we will be right back to the show At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash signup. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash signup. Link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Nice. I want to start and follow up just on that. You mentioned that when you first went in, it was a case of not necessarily ripping up, but addressing just because this is the way that we've always done it doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it. So, can you perhaps shed a light on what some of the things were that were deeply embedded that was being done that you identified as this is probably holding us back from? growing and actually we're going to need to change something here.
0: Yeah. So it would be like, let's say one methodology or messaging that was being successful. You just take it and wrap it up nicely like a present and just do it every single day. And then no AB testing, right? Like the market's always shifting. Things are changing, whether it's end of quarter at a fiscal, there's many things that are like components to like people having interest, right? Like we focus on doing like career sites and brand development and CRM and recruitment, marketing and social media. So all of those things are, maybe they're for the year before, right? So like talking to someone whose fiscal ends in January uh, in the middle of the year about all these different solutions you may have, that may not be relevant to them at the point, right? So it's like you said with data, it's like understanding like when is the right time to strike and striking with the right method. So for us, it's like I went and I broken up, like no one was doing in mailing, no one was really doing connecting and messaging on LinkedIn, right? Like they were doing emails that were effective, but they were, a lot of text, right, like a lot of cold calling, a lot of time spent just getting conversations that may not even lead to meetings, right. So like, it's just, what's the highest yielding levers you can pull? And let's do those first, right? It was like prioritizing that would be the was the first step to like, really getting somewhere and upping our numbers,
1: what then would be maybe the second step afterwards, I'm just very curious to know kind of how you approached, I guess, diagnosing the challenges that lay ahead of you, but then also starting to lead into how you then started to build more process around it. With
0: that, it's like I mentioned earlier about like never forgetting, like when I was doing SDR and AE stuff and all that, I'm still doing all of that as a part of my habits because like if you're enabling an SDR and you aren't doing what they're doing, how are you really being able to say, well, this is what works? So for me, I went in and said, look, here's your methodologies, I'm doing them, And it's not yielding what it could these are mine i'm doing them and look at my numbers comparatively so then once that happened then i was able to say okay so now how do we take them from point a to point b in an enablement process and not just say do what roy does quote unquote that's not enough right you need to be able to streamline it and put it out there properly so really it's about i was doing what i thought was best and then it yielded more results and then that was like you said all goes back to data If Roy does X for four hours and gets 200, and Lee does Y for six hours and gets 100, you should do what Roy does. So now let's break this down and dissect it. So that's kind of like how I approached it first. And I think it comes the second step of having that data. You need to be able to be in a culture and have confidence where you can go and say, hey, Mr. COO, CRO, CHRO, whatever. This isn't working, right? Like, and I feel like these days, that's where a lot of people are stuck in the talent spaces. They know what they're doing is backbreaking, but they don't have the culture or confidence to go to their leader and say, you're killing us here in the trenches and we need to change things. So like that's where I was able to kind of take that leap of faith and say, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing this. And this is the data I have to back that. And then then it's a no brainer because they're looking C-suites and VPs and anybody that's out there grinding they wanna see, your leaders just wanna see results. So if you can say this is a better pathway to results with less resistance, they should accept it. And if not, you're probably in the wrong business.
1: I really like how you are leveraging data, not only to really tell the story to the folks that report into you, but also in terms of reporting up. So I'm curious, is that something that you yourself are doing or do you have operations teams who are supporting you on the data side of things?
0: We have like sales operations, We have a guy who does sales ops. So like what it would do is you would take like Roy's thought or actions that he's doing or his team's actions that he's doing, and then they can, you know, formalize it. So that was kind of like the, we have a sales ops person that also does Salesforce. So it's like, you go into Salesforce and if it's confusing for me, it's going to be confusing for an AE, it's going to be confusing for an SDR, it's going to be confusing for a client. So we have to streamline that's less, remove the friction essentially. So we, yeah, it took a while to kind of get it rolling but once it's rolling then it's all of a sudden it's like oh there's juice to the squeeze right and that that's what you want to always show at the end of like extra effort or added effort
1: yeah you're not on your own there but it's the, (laughs) the the value of the data often pays itself back over time as soon as you've got access to it right and i i really love the idea but also the way that you approach it in terms of quite literally getting into the trenches and doing it yourself to really understand it to, and also backing that up with the data to then to show it to your team. So how are you then approaching, and this is something that comes up quite a lot, particularly with folks in RevOps. It's like, okay, I've got all this amazing data that's telling you what you perhaps should be doing or where you can get more success. The challenge then comes, how do I actually get them to do that consistently? And that often comes through process and it comes through enablement. You've touched on it a little bit already, but could you perhaps go into a bit more detail of your approach to enablement and how you build process around that to really produce consistency across your team?
0: Yeah, so like how they train people, how they train everyone to sell, right? Like, so if, if you were to learn how to sell people or if someone were to come in out the street and learn, like, this is how you sell somebody, I do it the same way with enablement, I just phrase it differently, right? So if I go to my SDR or someone and it's struggling, and I say, how much time are you putting in a week? Like, just be, be real with me. How much time are you putting in a week? Oh, I don't know, 43 hours a week, 36 hours a week, whatever. Like, isn't that hard to not see optimal results? Well, what if we looked at it this way? So I look at it kind of like, what's your current state? And what are the negatives attached to that? And what do you want to see? Like, and then I say, like, wouldn't it be great if you could just bash your quota in like three weeks out of the month and then either take the last week off or keep crushing it and go beyond attainment? Yeah, I totally want that, great. This is what I'm doing to see that and these other folks are doing. So like, why don't you just give this a try for a month or two or next quarter and really just see what's going on. So instead of saying like, cracking the whip and saying like, hey, this is what you're gonna do. You just say like, here are the optimal positives on the other side of this. So I suggest just trying it, right? Like, I'm not here to be a leader to tell you what to do. I'm trying to help you and this will help you. And then once you kind of get through, I think new onboards or new hires, that's easier. But when you come into a role and there's other folks who've already been doing their roles for X amount of time, they don't really want to see change. But it's one of those things like this, right? Like your success is despite your enablement, not because of it. Like that's like a big, like little, I would say like insight into things, right? Like we do a lot of brand work. So like. We tell companies, your success is despite of your brand, not because of your brand. So if we redid your brand, imagine what your results would be optimally if it was a focus. So like that's for us with enablement, it would be, Lee, this is what we're seeing. Like our top performers doing X, I've dissected that into these steps. And I think you should try these steps because I know this is the life you wanna live. You wanna book 12 meetings a month, and go swimming at 3 p.m. in your backyard. You don't wanna be working until 7 p.m. barely struggling to hit 50%. And that resonates with people just as you would sell someone through a sales cycle with a solution to solve the pain that they have.
1: Really love that last point. And I know that the answer to this is probably gonna be, it depends, but you mentioned there around dissecting what your top performers are doing, really interesting concept. What would you say are perhaps some of the common things that your top performers are doing? and what really stands out as we're getting a lot of success with this perhaps over the last 12 months
0: well i would say like you know if you send someone an email with five paragraphs about how great you are i'm sure that may work with some people but being real and being human and personalizing is really the angle that we've been going right so like if me if i'm trying to sell you on linkedin and i connect with you i just say hey lee thanks for the connect man and that's it. And then a couple of days later, maybe you visit my profile or whatever. But then maybe I look at your posts and say like, hey, Lee, like you're really in, into, into like revenue and you guys are really, you're hiring for 40 roles. Like, is that a struggle? Like how hard is it to get new hires on your team? And when you get applicants, like, I don't know, you get a thousand, how many of those do you have to weed through, but not all at once, right? Just have a conversation. And I think like my biggest message to people now is, Especially in the day and age of AI, be a human and you'll stick out the most, right? Like put a typo in your email. Maybe then they'll know that ChatGPT didn't write it, right? Like whatever you got to do to make it like clear that you're just a person asking another person and you're just genuinely curious. And like, if you had a headache and I had Tylenol in my pocket, why wouldn't I just say like, Hey, do you not want a headache anymore? Like here, like, and that's all you really have to do these days to at least spark the conversation and just don't come out with assumptions.
1: Everything that you're saying makes complete sense, and and I completely agree with it. And so, the obvious question that comes to my mind of why doesn't everyone do that? Why I think it's been talked about. Certainly, folks on LinkedIn talk about the power of personalization, the in a on a call setting, the power of listening to your prospect, of understanding their pains, and actually matching your solution to it. And yet, we don't all do it. And so, I'm curious for your opinion and perhaps perspective on. Why that is the case, first and foremost?
0: I would say that most people don't think being human is scalable. So they think like, well, robotically or through AI or through automation, I can get more spray and pray, right? But it's like, that's not really effective because it's so overdone that you're no longer standing out, right? Like the same with like outreach and sales loss and all that. Those are really great tech to use if you've already fine-tuned your messaging. Right. So people think like, I'm going to just import this trash email I found on Google and then just import 10,000 people into this via Zoom Info or Apollo or whatever you're using and just blast it out. I'm going to book tons of meetings. How's that working for you? Right. So like that's the type of thing where like I think people just need to slow down a little bit. Like, for example, I could go to Yuli and say, hey, I went to your website and I noticed in your career site that like your candidate experience is not good. Like usually we find with some of our clients that like that significantly impacts cost to hire. Like, is this something that you've thought of? So a lot of that, I'm just saying observation, data, what do you think? And it's so simple and people, you hook them. And what makes it good, what makes it ideal is that like, if you do it that way and they aren't hooked, then maybe it's not the time and you don't need to pester them. So right to ask the right questions, and I'm sure you know this O2 well, you don't wanna hang on to a prospect's coattails hoping that they buy. Because a CHRO, a CEO is not going to sign the check for a hundred, two hundred, three, three hundred thousand dollars because you hoped really hard. Right. So like that's the kind of angle I would take is that like be personalized, just be a human, ask, use data, and then just be generally curious. And if the response comes back, then great, have a conversation. And if not, like and that is scalable, but only if you're being effective and not busy. So many salespeople are busy, 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 busy but then like you're not getting any outcome. So your output's not matching your outcome. So that means you're doing things ineffectively.
1: Mm. How do you, with that in mind, um, and and as an FYI, I completely agree with the point on scalability often being the initial hurdle of why people wouldn't chase it. So I'm going to make an assumption here, but I'm very interested to know what kind of KPIs do you measure and do you target against with your team? Because my assumption is that it's probably not activity.
0: Yeah, so for, we track activity, but I'm trying to get us away from that because everyone focuses on like if you asked Michael Jordan how many times did you shoot the basketball, nobody cares, right? They care how many three pointers you sunk. So like that, that's the kind of method that I look at it. We're like nobody cares about how many emails you sent and how many of this. We care about like conversations, meetings booked, meetings completed, like presentations, demos completed. So I'm pushing the organization more towards outcome over output, and that's what we've been seeing, right? Like, because at the end of the day, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter to the high levels. They only care about, so you talk to like a CEO, he only cares about like, how many contracts did you sign? Then you go down to the next level VP, like how many demos did you do? Like, that's the focus of, that needs to be the focus of the data, not just output. Like, if you send 10,000 emails and book 30 meetings, and I send 20 emails and book 20 meetings, I bet you the CEO cares that Lee did more. So like, I know there's a, but there's a scalability to it because there's also a mix. You don't want to be sending 10,000 emails a month, but outcome matters the most. So how do we make a scalable approach for, you're bettering your brand, you're bettering your reputation, you're not sending out just like, I hope this finds you well and hoping to book 10 emails, 10 meetings a month, that you're actually doing it the right way, but you're getting way beyond optimal results.
1: Love that. Now, there's something that I was very curious around. We've talked a lot around sales development and booking meetings. i um, interested to know a bit more about perhaps within the organization, how that then connects to your A's on the front line. So we're booking loads of meetings and is that then turning into pipeline? Is that then turning into, gen- into revenue out the other end? Could you perhaps give a bit more context on what the process looks like from end to end from there?
0: Yeah. So it's just essentially for us, because we have so many value props, you just need to know who you're talking to. Right. So obviously a TA person cares about a career side, brand person cares about brand, marketer cares, cares about recruitment marketing. So fine tuning that and then really working on getting the meeting like I tell, like you said earlier, just listening. Right. Like it's okay if one of your team members is talking too much in you teams or slack them and just be like, just be quiet. Like let them like most of our first calls are, Hey Lee, this is what NAS does. And I give you a three minute flyover and then I say, Did that strike any nerves? And then if you want to just therapy couch it for twenty seven minutes for thirty minutes together and tell me everything that's going on, that's ideal. All right? Because and I think another part of the process that needs to be usually executed is If you say well we have a first meeting and then we have a discovery and then we have a demo and then we have a proposal review you need to base that on your prospects velocity not yours so if i have a meeting with someone who says well i need a career site and i need it up you know november 1st and i'm like cool it takes 60 to 90 days 30 to 60 days depending on the project size to stand that up i'm not going to put them through five or six more meetings to qualify them they're ready like if someone comes up and says i want a hamburger You don't say, well, hold on, like let's go sit down and talk about all the toppings and all the other sides that we have just to make sure like just sell it to them and then later work on the other solutions you have. So I think that's what happens too, is that like the overcomplication of the process. So ours is pretty malleable, right? Like if you came in and said, hey, Roy, this is a project for January 1st. I say, cool, like we have plenty of time so we can have lots of conversations and go through all the minute details and figure it all out. But if you said, I'm on a quick timeline, my goal is to, you're the customer, how do I match your velocity and, and get you what you need as fast as possible uh, to make you happy, right? So like that's yeah. we've to kind of fix where temperature check people on the first call, like we're very clear. I'm like, hey Lee, these are our prices. Like does that track? Great, this is our timeline, like what is your timeline? So like if I lead with the openness, they come back with openness, but if I say, oh, I really can't quote you right now until I check with Mr. Jones and then I get a proposal together in the whole bit. Like you're overcomplicating someone who wants to buy something, and that like think about Amazon, right? Uh, the less of clicks you have to take to buy what you want, the more they sell. So why would you add more steps to it on a longer process? right? So like, yeah, I think the long enterprise sale things, I know it takes time, but I also think like organization and salespeople, they keep that long as an expectation. What it doesn't have to be, it's all based on per company and decision maker and budget and timeline. So if you figure all that out, it can be much faster than you think.
1: Do you set like a specific criteria or have a specific criteria in place? What will qualify as, okay, we've checked that, we've got this stakeholder engaged, we know that they've got budget, so on and so forth to really gate it before it um, moves on to, uh, and gets handed over to an AE?
0: Yeah, I mean, usually the criteria with that is, is like, depending on how busy their schedule is, like, if you have a new hire, we're, we'll, they can talk to whoever, because I want them to be in the conversations and learn, right? So same with me, like, if I have an open Thursday, and someone's like, hey, Roy, I want to talk, and we only have five openings, hey, I'm just happy to talk, like, I don't have to have qualifying metrics. So like I'm saying, sometimes you have to have the conversation to qualify. So that's one thing that little irks me a little bit where like an SDR will book a meeting and the AE will go, oh, I don't know. If you have the time, take it. Like take the meeting and figure it out because that could lead to a referral. That could lead to something else. Hey, we're too small for your solution, but I know a guy who knows a guy or I know a VP over at wherever. Like I can't count how many times I've heard stories like that, right? So qualifying for us, I would say, is just having the conversation. I call our first meeting an alignment meeting. I don't even call it discovery. I could call it alignment meeting where it's super iterative and me and you chat and figure it out and like, what's going on? Like, what's basically like, what are you experiencing right now that's just driving you bananas? Like, cause most of the time, if your job is 85% good, that 15% of your job can ruin your whole job, right? Because of that, that like just the fire that's burning you, right? So that we usually go like alignment meeting for 30 minutes, just to chat. And then we do more into a discovery where we go into a little bit, what we've done, how we've done it, how, what's the price, what's the timeline. Um, and then post that, like most of the time, we'll just send a proposal. So we move it pretty quickly because I want you to know without massive amounts of investment, this is what they do. This is how they do it. This is what, who they've done it for. Here's the pricing attached to it and the timeline. So then now you have everything you need. If you go up to your superior or the person who writes the check, I've armed you properly to go sell this into your organization. And I've adopted you as part of my team, not as, hey, I really want to sell you this. Right. I want to enable them to say, this is your pain is how you solve it. Here's everything you need to sell into your org to solve that right now.
1: Great, I love that. Now, what we've talked about a lot for the last 30 minutes or so has been all the good stuff, right, All the process and the data and all the things are going well. I want to take a phrase that you just mentioned right there and kind of throw it back at you. What's driving you bananas right now? What well, it sounds like in the past eight months, I think that you've been there, got a lot done, got a lot of stability and a lot of direction and vision on where you are going and moving forwards. But what's probably the biggest challenge that you're still trying to overcome that is driving you bananas?
0: I would say, and I think this is pretty consistent with people I talk to, is that like worrying a lot about post-sale when the contract's not signed. Right? You're worrying about stuff that's going to happen on your kickoffs and on your assigning CSMs or ADs or whatever you utilize to keep your customers happy. Like You haven't signed a contract yet. Don't overwhelm them. Let them process and get things through and don't pressure them because it, it comes with this context of like, I sent them an MSA and an SOW and a contract and they've gave me verbal commitment that they're going to sign by you know, 9, 10. Great. There's nothing more you can do. Just back off. Like, and I strongly believe that like you following up every day over email is not going to make them sign faster. They have hurdles to overcome as well, just like we've done. So we've ran our race and now we're waiting for them for the run their race through their organization. So I would say that it's like post-sale pressure of like, what's kickoff look like? Who are we going to give for this and this and this? It's like, it doesn't matter yet. They could just hear tomorrow. Oh, our CFO quit today. He's signing nothing. And now we're delayed three months. So that's what I would say is pushing me on my end. And I think a lot of people were like, let us do our sales process. And then once it's locked, then engage with like, hi, I'm head of client services. This is your account director. This is what's next, no, things like that. So that's what I would say is where that's like the bananas are coming from.
1: Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go to market teams every week We speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Yeah. (laughs) It's super relevant given and forgive me because I don't know specifically was in your industry, but with given kind of macroeconomic conditions right now, everyone's being a bit more protective over what they're investing in. And so naturally there are there's often more stakeholders involved as part of the as of the buying process. So many things that you can't see. And then there's also uh, probably inevitably perhaps a CRO or as the case is like a VP above, like, can tell come on, like, we've got to get this in. We've got end of quarter coming up. It's a very fine balancing act, right? Between the two.
0: Yeah. And especially right now, too, because think about this, like, looking at it from their perspective, if they have to move all a lot of things around based on the economic conditions, we have to be willing to move things around as well or just give up the deal, right? So if someone comes to me and says, Run, my budget just got cut. I don't brainstorm, I go to the COO, I go to whoever and say, look, their budget got cut. Can we do this for this much or not? Like that's it, and if you say no, there's no negotiating, they're gone. So it's up to you, and you know what I mean? Like I can go as high as I need to go to figure that ton of stuff out. But yeah, there's a lot of things, and now like CFOs, like it used to be, hey, a CEO can make a call on the flow, but like not if the P&L reflects otherwise, right? So like CFOs are involved, finance is more involved. So now it's like, depending on your deal size, you may have, you got to convince convince the, the people are going to be using your tech, convince the people who are signing the check for the tech, and then convince the people who are, now you have finance, now you have procurement, now you have IT, now you have risk audit, now you have everything, right? So like, those are the steps, whether you like it or not, defining on the client. So if you want that as a client, as a client, that you're going to go through their steps, and if not, you're going to lose them, and that's it. So like, it's just taking it like, with your best foot forward with a smile because they don't wanna be going through that either, right? They want your technology tomorrow, but it's not gonna happen. So like, for me, it's like, you need to be able to ebb and flow depending. If it's a small deal, it's gonna take a long time. You need to make that choice drop it. Otherwise, go through it or, or be quiet, basically. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, completely agree. Roy, I wanna ask you one final question um, before we wrap up. What is one book that you would recommend to our listeners and to other revenue leaders?
0: there was a book that we did in the beginning the year it was called 40X, the four disciplines of execution. And this kind of aligns with like my style, because there's this thing where they have, it's called wildly important goal and they call it a wig, right? So every department will create your wig, right? So let's say in your wig, it's supposed to be crazy, right? Like it's supposed to be like, we're going to bring in $30 million in new revenue this year, something like that. Right. So like the point is, is you know, you shoot for the, moon and you land upon the stars type of thing but it keeps people motivated and it keeps things exciting where you're not like well we'll just settle for mediocrity and hopefully it'll all work out and we'll be mediocre right this is like shooting really high and i think the biggest part is that like especially in sales you're going to go through a failure you're going to have fail you're going to fail so like this sets you up for like man we set this goal for 15 million and we only hit 12 but your initial goal was only five so you actually crushed it but you're also getting used to, but then next time, but then next time, and you can stay motivated and enthusiastic for the next goal and the next goal. So that, that's an interesting one that I recommend people read.
1: Mm, nice, I really like that. I'll make sure that we put a, a link down to that in the show notes. All right, Roy, thank you so much again for your time. i you. loved dissecting all things sales and business development with you. For everyone listening, um, if they wanna connect, Chat to you more. Um, perhaps have any questions? Where can they find you?
0: On LinkedIn, and I'll, I'll with the the show notes. I'll post you my LinkedIn profile. And happy to connect and chat and connect with people, regardless of your background. Because as you know, now that I come from a crazy background of many different industries, so I'm always open to kind of just meet new people and have conversations.
1: I love that. I'll make sure we put it into the show notes. And just before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask one final thing because the. You mentioned very early on that when you were making the decision of after being a founder, you were making that choice, weighing up, what am I good at and what do I not like doing? And you mentioned what you didn't like doing was you hated hiring. And so the irony is not lost on me that you went into a recruitment company off the back of that. Why?
0: Well, I suggest that to everyone. If you're a teacher and you're looking to pivot into something else, like think about like what do you love about your job and what do you hate about your job? So my thought was, I like to sell, but I hate to hire. So I can go in and I can be relevant and personalized to my prospects and say, look, I hired for a really long time and it was terrible, but if I had this... Um this would have made it a lot easier, right? So like it's coming from a personal level of like salespeople will just pitch like, this is going to solve all your problems, but how do you know? So like SDRs, this is going to make you successful, but how do you know unless you're doing it? So that's kind of like, there's irony attached to it, but there's also, it's personalized at the same time.
1: I love it. Roy, thank you so much again. And to everyone that's listened to this week's episode, we shall catch you next week. Bye y'all. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.